Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NFL Roadshow. Lindsay Rhodes here with a slightly different episode today that I think you'll enjoy. I hope you'll take something away from it anyway. It's a conversation that I think a lot of us have been engaging in or at least observing peripherally in recent weeks, if not recent months and years, and that is the conversation surrounding mental health, and specifically, in this case, mental health as it pertains to sports. And obviously the situation with Simone Biles turned this into a top-of-mind issue a couple of weeks ago, but it's an issue that Ryan Leaf has been engaging in publicly for quite a while now. And there are obviously different layers to the umbrella of mental health, even within the sports world. But what we're seeing a lot of is athletes pushing back against things within the sports world that maybe we haven't been engaging in in the most healthy manner in the past. And it doesn't always play out the way that it did in Leaf's case, but his perspective is one that I think is interesting and certainly worth listening to, largely because of the vulnerability and accountability with which he recounts his past and his present. And for those of you who are not familiar with his story, Leaf was an incredible college quarterback. He put Washington State on the map as a Heisman finalist. He finished third that year in the voting ahead of Randy Moss. He was the second overall pick in the draft right behind Peyton Manning. And at the time, it was like 1A, 1B. It was not obvious which one of those two should actually go first. He was good. But he had a hard time transitioning to the NFL. Play was not what he or the team wanted it to be. The media was tough on him. He was defensive, combative. It was a combustible situation, and it combusted. And he has heard the word bust thrown around quite a bit, and we talk about that in pretty great detail. He struggled with identity issues after football and ultimately ended up self-medicating with drugs that led to legal issues and behavior that, again, he has acknowledged and worked really hard on turning around. He talks to college teams about his experiences. He is an open book on radio shows. He has a podcast coming out soon entitled Bust. And I think that there's something for us all to learn from the way that he's handled things in the last decade or so. Even if it's just a reminder that we're all going through something and empathy and kindness can go a long way. So I hope you will enjoy our conversation on the heels of a weekend that he spent celebrating his former NFL colleagues whose careers did play out the way kids dream of as members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Let's break the huddle with Ryan Leaf. Hurry up, let's go! Ryan Leaf, fresh off a weekend in Canton at the Hall of Fame game. What was that like? Hall of Fame induction ceremony, I suppose. Not the game, specifically. No, actually... Yeah, I actually flew in uh, on the red eye Thursday night. So I was watching the game at my house in California. And then I jumped on a plane and flew all night to get to um, to get to Canton uh, to do some work with the the Hall of Fame Behavioral Health Center, um, which is to help you know former players who are struggling with mental health and, and substance abuse and just health in general. And then because of who was getting inducted this uh this class, it was important that uh, that I be there to support support Peyton. But not only Peyton, the twenty twenty one class had John Lynch, who I played with in Tampa, um, had Alan Fanica, who was from our ninety eight draft class, and then Peyton and Charles Woodson, who were both from my Heisman class. So there was a lot uh, of guys that that I had really good relationships with. But ultimately, it was about about seeing number 18 go in. It was pretty special. Are you close with Peyton? Would you say you guys are friends? 
Yeah, we're we're incredibly close. We've known each other for 24 years. Um, you know, we met on a phone call. Our SIDs put us together on when I was at Washington State and he was at Tennessee. We both kind of knew we were going to be tied to each other for a long time. Uh, and we have. We've been linked with one another ever since that 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 moment. And, uh, you know, we competed against each other. And then when I was out of the league and, you know, my life started to spin out of control, dude was always there. Wrote, wrote to me while I was in prison. Um, invited me to his Hall of Fame um, to be a part of it um, and to be there with his family. So I, it's just, he, he's the only guy that can keep me out past midnight. I think I, I stayed up to like one 30, um, uh, Sunday night at his, uh, at his after party. That was, that was a lot of fun. Can you believe that? Like, cause I'm the same way you're at a point in your life when you're like, Oh, this is very, very late. I mean, for me at that number, by the way, is so much earlier than one I'm like, no, 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 it's 10. I kind of got to go. <laughs> well, I'm even worse. I'm like, like when the kid goes down, like if so whenever the kid goes down, then I'm like, okay, I should. And if I can, we'll go to sleep now, whether that's 8.30, 9.30. Yeah, that's usually the, the, my case. No, for me, I'm like, I should stay up and have some me time. Like this is the only time that I get, but I'm like, but I'm really tired. So instead yeah. I'm going to actually go to sleep at the first available opportunity. Are you at a point where you feel like, like this past weekend in Canton going to Peyton's uh, party and stuff like that? Are you at a point where you feel like you can legitimately just be happy for him, for Charles Woodson, for the people that are going through that experience and have that be the prevalent emotion? Or is there any part of you that you still have to work through in the moment where you're like, what if could have been me? Do you have to fight that narrative in your brain at all? No, not at all. It's probably been about six years that I've really just kind of, you know, had some radical acceptance around it and a ton of gratitude. That was my biggest thing about this weekend was the fact that I have these men in my life, right? I mean, th these are friends. These are people that I've known for, you know, 25 years because of a game. And that's pretty, pretty special. Um, I mean, hell, Tom Brady was there. Um, he remembered me playing against him in the Rose Bowl, the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, how, how funny is that? You know, I, you see the guy across the room and he's like, dude, I was on that sideline watching you you know, throw it all over the place against my Wolverines, you know, 20, 20, whatever was it, five years ago or whatever it was. So um, really grateful, just grateful for the life that I have, grateful for the things that have happened to me. Um, and I've, I've made some strong bonded relationships um, through that. And I was more than happy uh, to be there to support um, him going into the hall of fame. Also, you continue to get numbers read off to you when you're at these things. There's 336 hall of famers. That's it. Yeah. There are only 24,000 who have ever played in the NFL. So then you start to begin and go, Oh my God, I've been beat over the head so long in my life about how bad I was as a player that I, I started to believe it. And then I realized like, people reinforce it and tell you, boy, you were really, really, really good. <laughs> and, uh, and that feels good. You know, of course you have, of course I would have loved to have been a better player. Um, it was my dream. Expectations for me were higher than anybody else's. So, um, but I also wouldn't be the man I am right now. And I'm, I like the guy who I see in the mirror more than I did the guy that played football.
it's, it's, it, that is something that you touched on there that drives me insane about fan interactions. And I realize that fans are coming from a place where, you know, you're impacting my ability to have fun on a Sunday because you're playing well or not playing well or whatever. And you, they feel like you are being compensated at such a rate that it's okay for them to be as critical as they want to be. But when they reach the line where they're like, so-and-so was a bust or like that phrase drives me insane because I just want to turn to them and be like, when did you stop playing? Like, when did you max out? You know what I mean? Like, are you a bust? Do you consider yourself a bust? Like you didn't get half as far as these people got. And so it's just, that drives me insane. Does it still drive you crazy? Cause I've even seen interactions with you. I've taken part in a few on Twitter where people come at you and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think that uh, it, it says two things when they use the word bust. I think they say it's a compliment in that I was considered one of the greatest drafted players ever and that the expectations were really, really high for me. Um, and so that's okay. Um, I don't like the word either. It bothered me for a long time. It's the name of my podcast that's coming out this uh, fall. So I feel like I've kind of taken the, uh, the Bosworth route and sold my. What context? Sold, What's the whole. It's my story. It's me in 13 episodes from birth to today, my story and a testimonial, the way I do it when I travel around and do it, no interviews, not, it's, it's storytelling. And it's going to help a ton of people. And I thought I'd name it that simply because I thought more people would, would pay attention to it and it doesn't bother me. And it's almost, I'm like redefining the word in terms of how it, how it's built me back up uh, and how I don't let it affect me in, in that way. But I understand it, right? I mean, I was expected to be great. Um, and what was funny when Peyton went to the Hall of Fame, a lot of old stories were brought back up from 1998 because a lot of people who were really young who only know my name because of maybe uh, failure at the NFL level or or my travails with the with with my uh, addiction and things like that. And then articles come out and talk about they spoke to like 20 general managers headed into the headed into the draft, and 14 out of the 20 said I should have been the number one overall pick. Uh, people have revisionist history when they think about what that what that was like. It was neck and neck, and I've become pretty close with Jim Irsay, ironically enough, uh, in all of this. And uh, he told me a story that there was an NFL guy that he trusted a ton that he went to for advice, and said he, that guy called him the night before the draft and says, "You gotta, you gotta take this leaf kid." And uh, and uh, luckily for the Colts organization, Bill Polian had more of a say in that that deal, and and they chose to go with Peyton. Uh, it's fun to it's it's fun to hear those stories like that because um, there's so many tentacles that that were intertwined in my life over the last you know thirty years really uh, when it comes to football. So fun fun times. How much how much pressure? How much do you put on like the the weight of potential? You know, like when people do have those high expectations for you and they're talking about whether you should have gone first, but in that moment, like now this is, you know, 20 years later, right. 20, anyway, a long time later um, yeah. at that moment, how, what is that like? I thought it was exactly where I was supposed to be like, yeah, that's, 
you should be talking about me that way. I am the best there is. Um, I better be the first pick in the draft. I'm more talented than Peyton. I was more talented than Peyton. But everybody's talented at that level. <laughs> it's what you do from Sunday to Sunday. And he was the best at doing Sunday to Sunday. That's what made him um, arguably the best player to ever play at that position. It, it really was. I still believe a lot of things. You know, I was sitting there talking with Cooper and Cooper's son, uh, Arch, who's going to be Manning. a highly recruited young man. Uh, and we were talking about the Heisman Trophy because Cooper was talking about it. Cooper was the oldest. And Eli and my little brother Brady were like young kids and both our mothers dressed them up in like, you know, <laughs> plaid shirts with striped tie. It was just, it was ugly. It was ugly for the little 13-year-olds and nine-year-olds going through that process. And Cooper was making fun of Eli was sitting there and Cooper was making fun of Eli about what his mom, Olivia, dressed him up in. And uh, I was doing the same with, with Brady. And then Arch was sitting there asking about it. And Cooper was talking about, well, what did you do that night? And I said, well, I knew I wasn't going to win. So I went and saw, uh, I went, me and my, my coach, Mike Price, went and saw Saturday Night Live. Jack Nicholson was the host after the ceremony. It was so great. I went out all night partying with the old winners. Uh, it was just the greatest night. And then I, I paused at the end and I said, but I should have won it. And I should have won it. If anybody can take Washington State to a Rose Bowl in 67 years, deserves the Heisman. And I led the nation in pass. I deserved the Heisman Trophy that year. I was the best college football player. But, um, but Charles got it. And, uh, and I finished third. And I'm okay with that, too. You're clearly at a place in your life where you can talk about all of this stuff in a good-natured and healthy manner. Uh, it strikes me that there must have been a window of time where you were like anything football related probably couldn't have talked about in this way. Yeah, uh, it was dark time, really dark time, really my addiction. You know, when you're resentful, addiction revolves around fear, judgment and resentment. It really does. And I was in all three of those really deep and and I didn't want to feel those things. So therefore, I would numb myself out with with an opiate painkiller. And that was when football was really toxic for me. Like I was, um, I blamed it, right? I blamed uh, the media. I blamed the NFL. I blamed my hometown, uh, the Chargers, everybody. I blamed everybody but myself and any of it. So yeah, it was really toxic. But I remember, try to think of when I, I think it was the Colts and the Saints Super Bowl um, was the first football game I watched again since like 2000 and two or something like that uh and really enjoyed that game the the way Sean Payton prepared for it the dynamic way his offense and some of the decisions he made especially with the onside kick and how they were able to beat uh, an Indianapolis team that I thought was was incredibly good and from that point on I, I felt myself kind of get super involved in again now I still would go through some some more difficult times in my life but Football became kind of a cathartic part of it. Um, so when I finally did find that serenity and that, that, that clarity, um, I was able to look at football as a way for me to reach more people because it's such an institution in this country. And my platform, because of that, would allow for me to help people who are in need. And, and so now I'm really grateful for that. How did you get past the resentment part aimed at football? Because it strikes me that it's easy to forgive someone who is remorseful and we both know, and you've talked about the NC2A, you've talked about the NFL not taking care of its veterans 
as much as they potentially should, not being as emotionally invested in the long-term health and well-being of the people who gave their all for the game. How do you let go of resentment when they're not asking you to let go of it, when they're continuing to do the things that made you resentful in the first place? Well, I, uh, I pray on it a lot. I meditate on it a lot. And I, and I work with my therapist on it a lot because resentments continue to crop up. You know, um, I don't like phony people. I don't like people who gaslight, uh, you know, and, and I don't have a problem speaking truth to power, regardless of what anybody else thinks of me or what I've been through. I am, uh, and, a you know, an invaluable resource because of the things I've been through the 45 years of my life have been filled with uh, every kind of thing you can imagine. And therefore, uh, I feel really comfortable with that. But I, I still, you know, I, I think the biggest um, irony in our country is when we talk about mental health is that once you're honest about it, and then you say you're, you're taking steps to, to um, get treatment for it and everything like that, everybody just assumes like, or expects you to behave like you don't have this mental illness. It- a hundred percent. That was going to be my next question to you was about the pressure that you might feel to represent that triumph at all times. Like it's so you, you hit the nail on the head because you are exposing your vulnerability. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you've figured all these things out, but people talk, like look at you like, okay, now you need to be the good Ryan Leaf for the rest of your life all the time. And it's a perfect example. A year ago, May, when the pandemic started, I had a I had a very significant mental health breakdown and my partner, my fiance, um, didn't know what to do. And she called the police and the police don't send case managers or caseworkers. They send the police and it's about violence. And, uh, I was arrested. Um, ultimately it was dismissed and that was the perfect example. Like I've had so much going for me. And everybody's response to that was like, oh, must have relapsed. Oh, uh, yep. He's, you know, once a, once a um, piece of shit, always a piece of shit, you know. Um, but it was a, another opportunity for me to do exactly what I've been doing for the previous nine years. And just walk through it, deal with it, because life isn't fair. It's how you deal with it that matters and be proactive. And so Anna and I, you know, instead of really saying anything about it, we've started to take action. We're trying to lobby some state senators to put a bill into action that when when there's a mental health crisis and you call the police, case managers, case workers, people who are um, educated to come and take care of the situation can, because as soon as the police showed up on the door. Nine, by the way, guns drawn. She knew immediately it was the wrong people to call. She, we just escalated the situation. And, uh, and they were there for only one reason. Was it, it was about violence. And so um, she, was, she chased the cops all the way down to the, the police station trying to get them not to book me and everything like that. It was, uh, it's made... It was, it's been tough on her and I, but it's made us stronger. We're the parents of a little four-year-old boy now. And, and, uh, you know, we both know I live with this disease, right? It's just, we know I do, and therefore we have to act accordingly. So that's exactly the point I try to make when I go speak too. like a lot of these kids are going to be up on the pedestal 
But what happens when you get knocked off it? You just say, screw it, I'm done, it's over. Because I was in that mindset a long time ago. And now I have an actual corresponding story that is pretty recent that can actually um, articulate how to do that. Because when 2021 started, after I sat in my maybe self-pity for a little while, I really was about like taking control back. Like I'm going to make this year a lot about the foundation of recovery and helping people. Um, we're stuck at home. We're not able to be out and about and things like that. And so, um, you know, it was, it was the epitome of what I've been talking about for the last six years. I just had to walk it again and grateful for it. And these are conversations you're having on an ongoing basis with different football teams, athletic departments around the country. You're sitting to uh, right now at Ole Miss in an Ole Miss football t-shirt having what just spoken to the team there or just got out of practice with them this morning. Um, I come in for three days. I don't want to be the guy that shows up, walks into a meeting, speaks to him for an hour is gone. I want him to see me around. I want to see how, see, want them to see how I behave. Um, you know, that there's some humility and everything that, that goes on. I, I, I want to get them to know me. And then I give them my phone number. The end of my speech is my cell phone number. So every one of them in here has it. And they can call me at any point, whether they want to tell me something great happened to them or whether they're struggling with something and they just don't feel maybe comfortable calling a coach or something like that. Just somebody they can relate to. And I've been doing this for about five years now. I go to about five programs every fall. Really missed it last year. Couldn't go because of COVID. I don't like doing it on this platform by like zoom and stuff like that, because my story is palpable in the room. I got to be able to look them in the eyes and I want them to know what I'm telling them is the truth. And so uh, I'll be with them today, rest of the day, go through some meetings, sit with the quarterbacks and offensive coordinators because it's football stuff too. Right. I mean, that's, I, I, I've forgotten more football than a lot of people know. And uh, um, we'll do it again tomorrow. And then tomorrow night I'll speak to the team and then I'm off, uh, off and running. Uh, until football season kicks off and I, I start getting to do the cool things that I get to do because of the recovery and the foundation that I built six, six years ago with my broadcasting career. I get to go call college football games, which is the funnest thing uh, uh, I, I do. I love it. Where'd you get the idea of, like, why was it important to you to spend those three days there? Was that because of interactions that you had had with people who were trying to help you that you didn't feel were productive? I find that uh, working with the NFL and, and people in power who are more like propaganda machines, they want everybody to see like the pretty version of it. Here's the Instagram shot of me in front of the team speaking. And then they talk to maybe a player and like, yeah, Ryan's story is great. But I, I mean, dude was there for 30 minutes. I don't know who he is or anything like that. Um, 90% of this is showing up. That's, that's being a human being and trying to be of service and giving back to people. 90% is showing up. And there's a lot of people that I've interacted with over the last six years that have, um, that I thought were different, but it was, it's just, it's just a, a facade. And, uh, and I'm never, I'm just not going to be that guy. Um, I think I was that guy for a long time. Therefore I'm like, there's a, there's a looking in the mirror part of all this. And so when I'm in Oxford and I'm here, I want the kids to see me around. I want to want them to feel like I'm a part of something. I wear their gear. Um, I'm a cougar through and through. Don't get me wrong, but I, you know, it, I want them to see them. I'm part of what they're trying to accomplish. 
their head coaches is taking the time to ask me to come speak to their team. That's a big trust. That's a huge trust thing. And to their team is about making them better moving forward. So yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity. So therefore I, I try to spend as much time with them as I can. What is the crux of your message to these student athletes? What's the part of your story that you feel like is the most relatable to the most amount of them? Uh, choice, you know, choice and consequence, no matter what, like you have a choice in any situation, whether to deal with something in a healthy, positive way or a negative and toxic one. Uh, and there's little tiny, tiny, tiny choices along the way. And if you're not able to make those little ones, like when the big, huge ones that could be monumentally shifting in your life happen, you believe you would make the right choice in those moments. But if you haven't been practicing, it doesn't matter. It's over like that. And so I have a story for that. And I also can stand in front of them and simply say, hey, 24 years ago, I was exactly where you guys were right now. In fact, I was probably sitting in a much better place because I was about to be the second pick in the NFL draft. And should have been the first, according to uh, you. A lot of people, a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, and that's it. It's about choice. It's my story. It's, it's my story. It's then about being responsible for one another and taking care of your mental health. Um, and it's okay to not be okay and tell people about it and be vulnerable and transparent. It's the, the, the strongest thing I've ever done is get sober and be honest and transparent. That's the coolest and hardest thing I've ever done. And I've done a lot of shit, right? I've been a, the Heisman Trophy ceremony. I've been the number two pick in the NFL draft. I played in the NFL, all these things. And still, those are the, the two greatest achievements uh, I feel like in my life. Besides my son, my son's the first. So, Well, speaking of your son, how old is your son? He'll be four October 5th. So, yeah. Will your son play football? He can't wear a helmet till he's at least a freshman in high school. That's so there's no like Pop Warner or anything like that. Um, and then is that your rule or is that the way? That's ours. That's okay. our, me, me and Anna's rule. Um, she's scared uh, of what CTE presents because she loves me, you know, and we have a life together. And, uh, and, and we have some friends that are, neuro, uh, one's a neurologist and another's a neurosurgeon. And, uh, you know, he spoke, they both spoke in truth to us about, you know, the brain injuries that, that they deal with on a daily basis, not just from football, but just contact sports and stuff like that. So we're going to educate him. And at 16, if he wants to make a decision, um, we're going to give him all the information he can. Who knows what football is going to look like 12 years from now? You know, maybe somebody will have taken the decision out of our hands, right? Because they've figured out a way to make it as safe as possible. Because I still think it's an amazing game. It gave me everything. Uh, it brought me uh, friendships that will last a lifetime. Taught me a ton of lessons about leadership and, and all of that. So um, we're going to let him make the choice. That was our deal. We're, he's not going to wear a helmet until he's 16. And then I, I think if a kid hasn't played football in that matter, with a helmet until he's 16, he's most likely not going to all of a sudden start it up. Mm -hmm. um, he's going to be like six, nine. So I, I bet he's going to be on the basketball court or in the swimming pool or uh, on the baseball diamond uh, pitching or something like that. Who knows anything with a ball, but right now it's all about superheroes. So if like I, he thinks he's going to be Batman or Superman right now and that I'm okay with that too. So 
those can be dangerous as well, though, you know, flying about saving people dealing yeah, with uh, yeah. quote unquote bad guys. How yeah. much do you think that your experiences in sports and what came after your athletic career will shape you as a sports parent? In what ways? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly, uh, I'm not going to be the competitive parent, right? I know who the competitive parent in our relationship is going to be, and it's going to be Anna. Uh, she is competitive as I'll get out. Um, you know, division one volleyball player from Georgetown. Um, I just, I just want him to enjoy himself, but I learned that from my dad. Like my dad wasn't a, my dad just wanted to see my, see his sons perform, have fun. And that's where I learned it from. I don't know how I became so darn competitive, so competitive in a way that I would just like ruin people, ruin relationships because I was so competitive and wanting to win at everything. Um, I liked it. Uh, I hated to lose. And I see some of that in MacGyver a little bit. He, uh, you know, if he doesn't do something quite right, he's pretty hard on himself about it. And I just don't know where that comes from. It's just innate, I guess. Um, but he was so sweet the other day. We were playing golf with my brothers. And uh, the little trooper made it all 18 holes, loved riding in the cart, running around, chipping, putting, and everything like that. Well, my brother hits a bad shot and says, ah, gosh, darn it. Uh, and little three and a half year old MacGyver looks at my brother and says, it's okay, uncle Jeff, everybody makes mistakes. You'll do better the next time. And I just couldn't believe it. And it made me really proud at, at what Ann and I are doing and how we're raising them and teaching him. Like, I don't know if that, that thought concept crossed my mind until I was like 38 years old. And he's talking about it at three. Um, I love the fact that he understands that like we all make mistakes and it's okay to feel feelings and stuff. I just, we evolve. It's not a knock against our parents who raised us. It's just an evolution part of it and how we go about things differently. And um, so it, it was, it was neat to see. Intentionality. I think that we are all kind of in an era of understanding intentionality in our parenting in ways that people of our parents' generations just didn't. And right. uh, like, to your point, that's not, you know, their fault. It's we have access to way more information. I, for me, I just never want my children to feel like their value or identity are wrapped up in one specific thing that they do. And that is specifically important to me because that is something that I struggle with very much as yeah. someone who's always been an achiever and a goal setter. My identity is wrapped up in the things that I do in ways that I recognize are unhealthy, you know, like, so when NFL network decided to move in a different direction last year, year, year and a half ago, uh, I recognized that the thing that I was struggling with the most was the way in which, like, when people ask me, what do you do? That that would be a traumatic experience for me to answer yeah. that. I wouldn't have this impressive answer right off the bat, you know, um, to dazzle them with. So I try with my kids to be very intentional about fostering a growth mindset, which I don't think was the focus when we were growing up. So I try to reward verbally the effort or the behavior, things that are controllable as opposed to a fixed result. But I recognize that that's so hard for me because culturally, and then we work in sports broadcasting, we're celebrating fixed results all the time. When my yeah. son plays a baseball game, 
what do you inevitably do? You get in the car afterward and you call up grandma and you go, tell him, tell her what happened. I hit a home run. And I'm like, I have to be careful not to do that because I think that it, if you do that enough where you're, it's hard not to, cause you realize that is the result of a lot of hard work. And so you want to celebrate that their hard work paid off in a specific way. But I think maybe the thing for me that I try to do with my son is to, you know, you want to like celebrate, even if you didn't get a hit, I love the fact that you stayed with that thing that you're trying to adjust to make that thing better. You know, yep. I saw that that was hard for you, but you stuck with it. Like, and so I just, I, I think it's tough as a sports parent, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. I've been pretty, I'm pretty laid back around sports and stuff now and him and just enjoying himself. And, uh, but I think, I think Anna's going to be the one that I'm going to have to rein in a little bit. She may be yelling at some officials or some coaches or something like that. It's hard. Well, once they get to a point where they're competing against other people and you can feel the judgment creeping in, right? Like my son is seven years old, seven. It's absurd. So that this is, this is where we are. Um, and he tried out for all-stars for baseball. And I sat at this all-star tryout with a bunch of other men standing there with their clipboards. And I was like, my heart was racing. And I was like, <laughs> please be your best self. Please be your, like for you. And there's it legitimately is like, it's that whole thing that everyone says about having kids is like your heart walking around outside your body. Like you just want them to experience all of the joy and not feel that feeling of failure or whatever. And so that brings out the competitive urges in me as a parent. It's not so much that I care that he's the best ever. I just can't stand the thought of someone looking at him in a way that makes him feel like he failed or was less than. And that's what's what's allowed me to understand what my parents were actually going through and why, you know, why it may have been so difficult because I was the only one, right? I mean, I still am the only one. I'm the only Montanan who's ever been drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. The only what? one there are, there are more first round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of Montana ever. So my mom hated that everybody was looking at her son because she, she knew I had some character defects in terms of behavior and things like that. So it really was an issue. So I, I get it. I get, I understand that completely. And uh, there was nobody to kind of lead me or show me a way or how to, I just, I just knew I had to get out of that small town. Right. I had to, I had to, I had to make it, I had to live my dream, which was to be a professional athlete, whatever that looked like. So uh, it had to have been incredibly hard to raise, you know, that, that, that young man. Here's one that I struggle with. And I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on how to handle this. Right. And it actually came up for me with the Simone Biles stuff very recently in that. I think that there's a tricky line here because one of the best things about sports is that you can be faced with adversity, something you don't think you can do, and then you do it. And then you know on the back end, I can do hard things, right? Like that is one of the most valuable lessons that you can take away from sports is working through something and then having that success. How do you know as a parent or a coach, someone in that position, when to push so that they learn that lesson and get that experience? And when do you hear, I don't want to, I can't, and let it be that? It's incredibly hard. I don't, you know, I'm a new, I'm a new parent. So coaches, um, I, I love that in coaches. I loved the confrontation, the push from coaches. It just, 
that's who I related to the best. That was where the relationships were the best with me when I could, you know, he'd yell, yell for me to, you know, get up and get going. And I would yell, get, jump up and yell at him too about, you know, some nonsense. And we'd go back and forth and I'd, I'd, I'd go get it done. And then we, at the end of practice or at the end of the game or something like that would, would hug each other and be like, we knew what we were doing to try to get the best out of each other. And I, and my dad and I had a relationship like that. We could look at each other. He could look at me and I'd know exactly what he was talking about in terms of something. And we'd hug and, and that was how it works. And I feel like that's the way I'm going to go about it with my son. I'm going to push him uh, to overcome, overcome things. I, I, even early on right now, when he says, you know, um, I, I can't do it. I say, you can, you can, you can, you can do it if you just, if you just try hard. And then he's figured out a way, like if he wants to complete it, but it may be just a little bit too difficult, he'll, he'll look at me and, and say, I need some help. And I think that's a huge step because I didn't hear that from a man. I think my whole life growing up in the cowboy culture of Montana and then mm. in locker rooms, I never heard another man say, Hey, can I, I need some help. Can you help me? I can't do it yet is the thing that I've latched onto with my kids. When yep. they say I can't just out of the word yet. That was a big one end. because, because we went to practice, we went to UCLA's practice on Sunday and he was a little kind of shy and everything, but all of a sudden I got him a football and he put it in his hand. He started walking around and then he saw all the players running out onto the field and start practicing. And he looked up at me and he was like, okay, I'm gonna go play football now. So he started to run onto the field with all these huge men. And I had to grab him by the shorts and say, Hey, you, you, you're, you can't yet. You're not, you're not big enough yet. And then he stopped and he goes, dad, I need to get big enough so I can play football. And I was like, okay. I don't think it's going to be a problem for you, but right. yeah, you're going to, you're going to be, that's not be the problem, enough. son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How have all of your experiences around football and in your life shaped who you are as a sports broadcaster? Cause it strikes me that like, there is such a judgment element and an, and an aspect of like, I talk about, you know, not wanting to talk to my son about fixed results and stuff like that. But like, then literally that's what I do for a living. And I speak yeah. in a judging way and I try to do it in a soft way. You know what? I'm never going to be super critical. I'm going to say so-and-so struggled today or whatever. Like there are ways that I've, that I feel more comfortable phrasing, uh, things around, uh, failure, quote unquote. But I'm curious about your experiences and what you've seen that broadcasters did that you hated and how you think that that has influenced the way you approach it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not hypercritical of, uh, of players because I know what that felt like. Um, I'm usually critical of plays. I think that's the best way to put it. If a player makes a poor uh, decision on a play, you know, I talk about that. I also like in my broadcast career to sit at the breakfast table with my dad, talking stats, uh, talking about sports or watching a game with them. That's the best way I can describe how I call college football games. Um, I utilize everything that I've um, learned um, and, and what I, and how I watched film and how I assess games. And I love to celebrate the game. I think is the best way to put it too. But, um, I've worked with great play-by-play guys who really set it, set it up really well for me and just allow me to kind of do exactly what that position is meant to do. And that's to explain to the audience why something worked or why something didn't, why something happened. Simply as that. I'm not trying to tell anybody how smart I am at football. I'm just trying to 
educate them on, on what's going on and, and give them some insight and do it in a fun, jovial, um, don't take yourself too seriously way. That's, that's the best way I, I think I can do it. I would really, you know, don't tell any of my bosses this, but I would do this job for free. I would yeah, absolutely. No, we're going to edit that out. Yeah. Um, uh, what he, what he actually meant to say was he would do this job for a lot of money. A lot of money. If you're going to pay, so if you're going to pay, if you're going to pay Tony Romo a million dollars a game. Woo. Yeah. Um, I can get on board with, with that one. Um, and Where's I think your this love? year, can, Where's your love? Is it college or NFL? It's college, but I think just more accepting of what my ties are to the NFL and everything like that. And now Sirius XM has given me an opportunity. I do a ton of NFL radio on Sirius XM channel 88. And then this year, it looks like I may get a few opportunities to call some NFL games uh, with Westwood one. We'll see. Um, I would really, really like that. And there's a couple other opportunities uh, now that the, the game of fo- NFL football is spreading around the world. Um, maybe doing some, doing some things internationally around the NFL. So that's, that's, that's interesting. And you'll be attending a chargers alumni event coming up soon. This uh, season? I, I was supposed to um, this next coming week, I think, I think this next coming week, but I'm on the road speaking at teams, but they do have legends weekends throughout the year at SoFi stadium. And I, I plan on, 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 on attending a game this year. Yeah. So it will be interesting. Um, have you not done that in the past? No, I, it's been really hard because, you know, everybody has like a home team. The team you're drafted to is usually the team that, that, that you, you can always go home to, but it was such a poor relationship. I burned a lot of bridges. Uh, the fan base disliked me greatly because I was supposed to be the savior. And I turned out to be what a lot of people think is a bust. And then I moved on to some great franchises. I worked with Tony Dungy and the Tampa Bay Bucks. And then I was with Dallas and Jerry Jones's organization really loved my time there, but I wasn't there very long in either place and I wasn't drafted there. And so I always felt like a man without a country when it came to the NFL, like, do I belong anywhere? Um, do I deserve that? And we've gradually worked back to a place where I've had some good conversations with, with Dean Spanos, the owner who was there during my time um, with the, you know, the legends kind of coordinators there at the chargers. And once I started getting the newsletters and the emails and things like that about the invites, I knew that, that, that the ice had been thawed enough where there, that could be the opportunity. Then it, then it's all about whether or not I can withstand like, you know, standing up in a chargers game and, and, and being booed, you know, is that something that I, have I gotten to a place where I can do that because it affected me so greatly for a while. And I, I'm at a place now where I'm like, yeah, you know, what other people think of me is none of my business. So uh, I can be a part of it. And it's more about, you know, seeing old brothers, I think is because the number is small and because of a lot of the unfortunate deaths over the last decade, um, it's gotten smaller. Well, I think it's so admirable that you are at a place where you are willing to be vulnerable and put yourself in that situation. And I would hope that that wouldn't play out in the way that you describe. 
I just, you know, a lot of people come from your angle on that thing. They think, they think, they think I'll get a, a more positive response. I, 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 uh, I feel like I'm more of a pragmatist and, and I feel like, you know, maybe most, defensively, most, right. Yeah, you want to prepare yeah. yourself for the worst, like, yeah. so you're not caught yeah. off guard. Yeah. Expect the worst, hope for the best. Yeah. I just, I've always felt like, and this is, you know, this is a PR conversation, but I think that this hits at home with what people are actually looking for. I think if you are vulnerable and you, you take all of it on yourself and it deflates the air out of the people who want to put it onto you in a mean way. I think most people are like, if you get a genuine ownership, apology, whatever, where you feel like someone's really being vulnerable for you, I, I think most people are willing to just be like, okay, good, you know, and done with whatever preconceived notions I had. So I, I think the issue is whether or not enough Chargers fans in this case have heard your story and have heard right. you talk to take that air out. Cause if you were just sitting in the stands, like without having done anything that you've done in the last decade, then, okay, maybe they're like, yeah. you know, no, thank you. But under the circumstances, I just can't imagine anyone who's in any way informed about what you've gone through and who you are now that would even think about booing. So I think it's you've great on, what you're you've, doing. You've, you've been on Twitter. You you know the, the type of people that exist know, out there. <laughs> I know it doesn't make sense to me. How are you on Twitter? Like, how do you deal with that? How do you read the mentions? Because that's something I struggle with. I mean, I think almost all of us do with like how to filter, you know, and I'm somebody it's, that hears the one negative comment. And that's oh, the only yeah. thing that's I how, think that's, about. That's, that's, the, that's the human experience. That's who we are. Like, I, exactly. You know, I posted picture with me and Peyton, uh, from, uh, oh, Friday night. I mean, like, this is going. No, probably, you know, it did 4 million, 4 million impressions and probably 3,900,000 of them were unbelievably supportive, great messages about everything. And to your point, like we will take the one, um, because a, it's kind of what I'm used to, I'm used to be like, you know, when somebody says, Ryan, you, that's amazing. You're a role model and everything like that. And my, I, my eye contact goes down and I kind of like, that feels uncomfortable. But if somebody goes like, yeah, that Ryan, that Ryan is an, is an absolute asshole. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. Now that I want to fight right. and this is my comfort zone. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't, I don't allow negativity on my, uh, on my social media platforms. Um, you know, I, I kill them with kindness and I, uh, and I, uh, I try to be the part of the solution in everything I do now because resentments are like, uh, are, are like drink, are like drinking poison and hoping it kills the person. You know, that's, that's my best analogy around all that. Well, I think you're going to help a lot of people going around and talking to these colleges the way that you are and spreading this message and being vulnerable in the way that you are. And I hope that more and more and more of those messages that come back to you are of the positive nature. Me too. I, they are every it's, I live in a, if I could call it the life of my dreams, this is the life of my dreams. The fact that I live in a unchaotic, peaceful existence with the family that I have, knowing that I get to help people. And, um, and I also get to do, um, which is like a dream job, you know, and, and, and it, that that's, and what, what more could I have asked? What more can you ask for, really? Uh, you know, you know life, life is life. It's still going to be hard. 
nothing changes, right? Just because you find this peace and serenity doesn't, you, you get to, de you deal with it in a healthier way, but there's still going to be life to deal with. And, and I found that out. And I think a lot of people found that out over the last, you know, 18 months because of what has gone on. Congratulations, Ryan. Good luck with the broadcasting, calling games. Yeah, excited, excited. Took the didn't get to do it one time last year, uh, and I called like twenty games in 2019. So I'm I am rip roaring ready to get back at it. As for those of you listening at home or in your car or wherever you're listening, thank you so much also for participating in this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more like it, please give us a five-star rating and a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. The NFL Roadshow is also available on the SXM app, which is free for most subscribers. You can just download it, tap podcasts, uh, and we'll show up. Also, for video clips of the show and more, follow me on Twitter at Lindsay underscore Rhodes, also on Instagram where I am Lindsay Rhodes NFL. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. And we'll see you again next week. Serious XM Podcasts.